Jesus heard it. He said to them, Those who are, have, who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and the people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, the, and a worse tear is made. No one puts new wine into an old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Amrath, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him? And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of God is Lord even of the Sabbath. Again he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good? or to do harm, to save life or to kill. But they were silent, and he looked, at, looked around them with anger and grieved at their hardness of heart and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. The word of the Lord. All right. Good morning, Christ Central Church. I'm glad that we could join us this morning. Uh, as you can see, there's a lot of things that happen in order to make Sunday worship possible. Uh, we often don't notice it, right, unless something happens like this. So sometimes I think God does this to remind us we need to pray. Uh, that our worship, uh, sometimes we take for granted thinking this is how we always ought to work, but there's so many moving pieces, and this, it really is a miracle in many ways. God allows us to be able to worship like this, this morning. Amen? Amen. Thank you for joining us this morning. I'm, my name is Josh Kim. I am an assistant pastor here at Christ Central Church, and uh, if you're new, uh, our pastor, our senior pastor, is on sabbatical this this time, and even during the time that he's on sabbatical, we as a church is continuing to preach the gospel, continue to grow together, and last week we had a pastor, Mari Hill, come and share the word of God with us, and we actually have, as you heard this Friday, Good Friday service with our sister church uh, in town, and Pastor Mark Upton, a good friend of ours, will come and share God's word with us as well. So please mark your calendars for that. We're excited to be able to join with them. We always do this in every Good Friday service. Last year was an exception because of the beginning of pandemic, but we're excited to be able to go back to this and to be able to do this again. So please mark your calendars for Good Friday. Because today marks 
what we call a Palm Sunday that, that marks the beginning of um, Passion Week. And Passion Week could also mean a week of suffering that culminates in Good Friday and Easter Sunday that is coming up. And this week is a week that we remember what Christ has done for us, not only by coming and walking with us, but also taking this road to the cross as he takes sins upon his shoulders. And as he dies on the cross and rising again to remind us that this is the only hope that we have, that in Christ alone that we could find hope, the ultimate triumph over sin and death. And this week highlights, and this Sunday highlights him fulfilling that truth, fulfilling that promise by riding on the donkey's back and coming into Jerusalem, not only to be crowned as the king of the universe, but to die on the cross. So the title of today's message is aptly titled, The King Who Comes for Us. Our king who comes for us. And as we think about what that means this morning, as we think about what that means for us throughout this week, the king that who is coming for us, the question that you and ought to answer is, is this the king that you're waiting for? Is this king truly coming for you and I? Because the text that we just read today, we're introduced to the two groups of people that has an encounter with this king. And on one side, we find Pharisees and Herodians, and it is read, the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians, or the opposite political group, as you might say, at the time. And they plotted together how to destroy this king who is coming. But on the other hand, we find another group, in verse 17, it says, When Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need for a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So on one hand, we see Pharisees and Herodians plotting to destroy the coming king. On the other hand, those who are sick, who are in need of physician, those who our sinners are desperately waiting for the king to come. So clearly there are two distinct responses to who Christ is. And I believe we're going to do this one more time and see if this works. Thank you for your patience. We need that too because I'm not going to try to speak into this voice. All right. Does that work? Okay, one time. One, one minute. By the way, this, this mic says Howard Brown on it. And maybe it's a reminder that we need to pray for him, right? Like, I'm reminded that, oh, I need to pray for my pastor. Are we good? All right, I'm going to move this out of the way. All right, this will make me move a little bit more, too. Thank you, guys. Again, thank you, guys, Doug and Jason, for working back there. I know a lot of us don't get to see them. Thank you for working so hard and uh, making this possible for us. So going back to what we talked about before, there are two distinct responses that you and I ought to have as we come before Christ. On this day, as we think about the king that is coming, the question is, 
who is this Christ that you're waiting for? Who is this about anyways? What is this king about that you ought to wait for him? Who is this king about that those who are sinners, who are sick in their heart, long, long for as we wait for the king that is to come? And today's text tells us of the story that surrounds this king. And it teaches us what this is about, what this whole following Christ, who Christ is about, and also teaches us what this is not about. So in order for us to define what this king is about, we're going to look at what this is not about to begin with, what this king is not about. And what we see in this text is that this king is not about feeling good about yourself or seeking moral righteousness. You see, the Bible tells us this king is not only good about, is not about you feeling good about yourself or seeking moral righteousness. Well, as simple as that sounds, quite often we fall into trap of feeling morally good or seeking our feelings rather than what he really is about. And that's what we find in verse 18, the question that is posed to Christ. It says, Now John's disciples and Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples fast? And disciples of Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast. And the question is, what's the deal with fasting? If you ever skip the meal, you know how famished you get. My wife says I get um, hangry, hungry and angry at the same time. And just imagine doing that on purpose for a length at a time, right? Some of us do that, I know, for good reasons. But why did Pharisees make such a big deal here? You see, the Pharisees, according to the tradition at the time, fasted twice a week, Mondays and Thursdays. And the question is, why did they fast twice a week? Well, you see, Pharisees were religious scholars at the time. They pointed to the Old Testament spiritual discipline practice of fasting, and their fasting often pointed towards the practice of fasting during the Day of Atonement, literally paying for your sin or being atoned for sin. But Day of Atonement had elements of God atoning for your sin. But taking this a bit further, Pharisees wanted to show that they were religious and they're zealous for forgiveness. So one thing that they did that was to fast two times a week. And notice again, the fasting itself was not an issue here. It is actually a good discipline for you to have, especially for two Many of us that often make our body into idols, it really shows us how fickle our body is. Because oftentimes when you fast, you realize all you want is food. And you realize how finite your being is. And oftentimes spiritual discipline of fasting is used to realize not that you feel holy by not feeling hungry when you're fasting. You ought to feel hungry. But it eliminates all other desires that you have. And that's often how spiritual a discipline of fasting is used, and it gets lost in the American church at the times, but it is practiced commonly throughout many, many generations. So the idea of fasting isn't the issue here. And furthermore, Jesus doesn't make it about fasting as an issue. But the question that he wants to deal with is the question of why do you fast? And even to assist that, Mark also includes the details about John the baptizer's Disciples were also fasting. So Jesus is not saying that fasting in itself is bad. But notice what Jesus says here. In verse 19, he says, And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. 
The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. So what is Christ talking about? What Jesus is talking about in this text is that he himself is that bridegroom. The reason why people fast in the Old Testament is they long for, look forward to God to intervene in their life to forgive their sins. The reason why Old Testament uh, practice of fasting happened is because of our need for a Savior. And Christ is saying, I am that Savior. Therefore, why are you fasting? We ought to celebrate because I have come to atone for your sins. In a clear yet powerful way, Jesus was telling them he is the reason why they fasted. So whoever is Christ's disciple need not to fast now, he was saying, because the purpose, the heart of fasting is here. And furthermore, he uses another parable to make a point. Make his point, right? He says, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth, an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away, the new form, new from the old, and the worst tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old skin. If he does, the wine will burst the skin, and the wine is destroyed, so are the skins. Now, new wine is for the fresh wine skin. Again, using the familiar imagery for the people at the time, Jesus highlights the change of the guard, the New Old Testament anticipation of the Redeemer. The Old Testament longing for God to come is now here. He's saying, can you not see? Can you not see? All that you have studied, all that you try to fulfill, points towards me, the king of the universe, the king who comes to save, the king who has the power to atone for your sin. What Christ wants to deal with in this text is the heart of the matter, the purpose behind why Pharisees fast. And you could replace fasting with all the good things that you and I may do. It could be about giving. It could be about praying, reading, serving, volunteering, being kind to one another, even loving your neighbor. You could replace all that. But the question is, why do you do all these things? What's the purpose behind all those what Christ wants us to remember is that it's not for moral righteousness. It's not about feeling good about yourself for being a Christian. It's not feeling good about being someone that's kind to others at that. It's not only about chasing after those things. It's not about thinking or feeling good enough to come before God. This is not what this king is about. And quite often, we may find that we're much more like Pharisees than we like to admit we often check boxes in our lives before we come to the Lord and say, God, look at me. I'm good enough to come before you this morning. I'm good enough to come in this place. And oftentimes we want to hear messages that is good for us, but that's good for us to feel good about ourselves rather than transformative life that God calls us to do so. That's not good enough, church, for us. And at times the trap is wide as our personal struggle as well as the societal brokenness that draws us into that mindset. In light of the rise of hate crimes against Asian Americans, it's been a tiring week for many Asian Americans in your own congregation, as well as many around this nation. 
And I'm grateful for many of you, our church, for standing with Asian Americans, seeing us, loving us. Love that prayer uh, Elder Ibrahim led us last week. And many of your text messages, just the phone calls, prayers, um, always reminded us of the reasons why we're here, to be part of God's redeeming grace in this church. But we also realized that wasn't the case growing up many times for us. As we're talking about the rise of anti-Asian hate crimes, oftentimes we could think that this happens this, this past year with pandemic, with the rhetoric of hate. But actually, it's been around as many generations in the past. And I lived through that. You know, my wife and I had recently had a conversation of how often the anti-hate sentiments made us not like ourselves, not love ourselves. We often were thought or taught that we need to be better. And oftentimes, what we did was we often played into the false narrative of model minority and thought if I just could do a little bit better than the others, then I'll be accepted. If I seem to fit into this hierarchy of things, of racial dynamics that this nation has created or have fallen into, then I may be loved more, accepted more. And I will say, at times, I believe that to be true and fell into that time and time again. Not only myself, my parents, and many people. But church, you know what I realize? Those are false lies. It doesn't work. Never once by chasing after privilege have I felt more accepted by God. Never have I felt more loved by God because I gained a status in a society. Never once I felt like I was good enough because I had different names and different letters next to my name. Realize Chasing after those things, as ecclesiology has told us, is meaningless. There's a real temptation, though, a real struggle at that. But you know, I think that temptation is not only relevant for Asian Americans here, but for all of us. Scripture calls us that we are foreigners, aliens, marginalized. If you're truly in Christ, it tells us in 1 Peter, we ought to have that identity of aliens living in this world. And the hope that we find is that only identity that can restore you, that could give you hope, that could give you confidence as you come boldly before the the Lord, is that you are who you are in Christ. The King who comes for us is here, and when He comes to set us free, that's when you and I can be truly free in the Lord. Becoming who you're meant to be. It's the biblical truth to be celebrated as the image makers, image bearers of God. That's what we're called to chase after. So it's not just about doing things or sacrificing things so you can fit in or feel better. Oh, you saints, oh, you fellow image bearers, do you embrace this? Do you know that you're called to far greater freedom 
than your, just your commitments and sacrifices? Church, your whole identity, your soul is at stake as you follow Christ. So even speaking out against injustice is done not because we're better. Do you know that? It's not because we know and you don't. It's not about that at all. It's not because I want to teach you something. Follow me because I know better. We need Christ. The reason why we march, we speak, we testify is because we need Christ. This world needs Christ. As Martin Luther King Jr. famously once said, his truth is marching on. And we just merely follow after that. So this discipleship, this following Christ, is not about center on moral righteousness, church. It's not about feeling good about what you do and coming to church on Sunday, volunteering and serving. It's not about following rules to get there either. We're told in verse 23 that Jesus is going through the grain fields on Sabbath day again, and Pharisees come and accuse now, the second time, of what he was doing as wrong. In verse 23, one Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and they made their way. His disciples began to pluck the heads of grain, and the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Again, another accusation. So they accused his disciples, now the followers, of breaking the law of Sabbath. And back in the days of the, uh, the biblical times, the disciples reflected teachers' values and heart, even today too. So what they're doing is they're indirectly accusing him of breaking the law. Law of the Lord, law found in the Old Testament. And they invoke one of their sacred rules, thou shalt keep the Sabbath holy. And according to letter of the law, if you want to be truly the letter of the law, it is maybe true that they might have been breaking the law here, right? The letter of the law states that they shall not do any work at all. Pharisees took this to the extreme, and they say they would not even swallow their own spit, that that's a work. They would not take the pebble out of their shoes. For them, it was a serious deal. So when they're saying you're breaking Sabbath, they meant it. They're like, you are working on the day. Even try to feed yourself is work. But all the while, they're missing the heart of the law here again. You see, the letter of the law describes what the law was about. But the heart of the law addresses why the law is given in the first place. Sabbath, according to its original intent, was for rest and restoration and renewal. And I think we learned a lot with our pastor walking us through that before he went on a sabbatical. The Sabbath points towards the eternal rest that is to come with God and was meant to remember what God has done, creating the universe and resting, following the patterns of our, uh, our Creator, as it teaches us to look forward to the eternal rest that is to come. And again, what Jesus is saying in this text is, hey, I am that rest that is here. And he invokes the famous story of David, King David, allowing his men to eat the bread and focusing on the importance of men over the rituals to state that one greater than David, the king that you long for in the Old Testament, that pointed towards in the New Testament, that king is here right now. The fulfillment of that eternal rest, the king is here. Jesus comes and says, he is the rest he alone can provide the rest. You see, this king is the one who comes for us. It's not just about following a set of rules, set of standards that you and I have to follow. Rather, it's about knowing the heart of the lawgiver. What Christ does is to reveal to us not the set of rules that we have to follow, but what these rules are fulfilled in him that show us 
the heart of our Father so that you can help but to fall in love with the lawgiver who gives this law graciously out of his love for us. And when we cannot fulfill the requirements, the holiness of the Lord that sets him apart, he is here to die on the cross so that when he sees you, he sees the perfect righteousness that Christ gives to us. He gets to the heart. That's what Christianity, that's what following Christ is all about. I love this story that I was reading as I was preparing for this message. It's about Mary Ann Shedd, the first African-American woman newspaper editor. She depended on this freedom of action by working on Sabbath as she fought for abolitionist movement. In her sermon titled, Break Every Yoke and Let the Press Go Free, she said, there is too a finite fitness of time, um, finiteness of time, for any work for the benefit of God's human creatures. We are told to keep holy the Sabbath day. In what manner? Not by following simply the injunctions of those who bind heavy burdens, but combining with God's worship, the most active vigilance for the resurrection from degradation, violence, and sins of his creatures. In these cases, particularly is the Sabbath made for men and women, if you please. Christ has told us, as it is lawful to life a sheep out of a ditch on a Sabbath day, a man is much better than a sheep. She got it, didn't she? She gets the heart of the lawgiver, and she worked and worked to fight slavery. It wasn't just about resting and doing nothing but resting in the Lord who could provide the ultimate rest of the evil of slavery. To bring it closer to home, church then reminds us that what we do on this Sunday, what we do on this Sunday worship is not just about church stuff, right? What we do on this Sunday worship is not about feeling good because we woke up this morning to make it to church on time. It's also not just about our children sitting with us so that we are raising them in a Christian home. It's not just about doing the traditional things or the, the morally righteous things as a family. Children, youth, and parents, if you're listening, we want you to hear this. What we do on this Sunday, our worship is not only about the adults here, and oftentimes we make it about that. Our worship experience focus shouldn't just be, am I distracted in this time? Man, I need this time by myself. My husband and I, I really need this time. My wife and I really need this time. Yes, that is absolutely important. I see the need for that. Please do not hear not what I'm not saying. We need space for that. But we also believe it is just as important for our young children to worship and see our king clearly. So this thing that we do on Sunday is not just about the adult here, but the whole church. And as we as a church is going to be committed to that, we took all to vows to love our children and to disciple them together, whether you have your own physical children or not. You know, I'm so grateful for our youth director, um, Corey Gaston. I'm so grateful for 
uh, Miss Erin McFadden, that I had a privilege of having a conversation with, where she discipled me on what it means to love our children. You know what they would do? They would model for us. They would disciple us. They will equip us. But church, our calling is we got to do this together. To volunteer, to serve, to pray, do our Easter boxes with our children. And you, children, teenagers, let's do this together too. It's not about Christ-central way. It's not about my father and my mom's church that we're going to. We want you to get this. We want you to get to the heart of why we do this on Sunday. We're called to do this together as a body of Christ. This Christianity thing, this following Christ, the king we're waiting for on the Easter, for you all, it's the same thing as all of us. We want you to see the king that will deal with our hearts, your hearts, and we as a church are going to do this together. Amen? Amen. So as we see what this is not about, right? Now we're going to further examine what this following this king is all about. And at the heart of what this king promises is and demands from us is having Jesus as the Lord is what this Christianity, discipleship, following king is all about. And through two encounters, he teaches us and demonstrates that he is the Lord even over religious rituals at the time. He preaches and he says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. But not only he speaks, but he follows that up with authority. And the next story we see with the healing of a man with a withered hand. It says in verse 3, Upon entering the synagogue, Jesus encounters a man with a withered hand and in orders him to come. And the Pharisees were looking to capture Jesus again, now in action, right? And it says in verse 3, again he, uh, chapter 3, actually, verse 1, again, he enters the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on Sabbath. So they might accuse him. Fully knowing this, Jesus shuts them up by asking a question even before the accusation comes and demonstrates that indeed he is the Lord of Sabbath. And he says in verse 3, and he said to the man with the withered hand, come here, come closer, right? And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or do harm. He's speaking to Pharisees. To save life or to kill and to disciples that are there. And they were all silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at the hardness of their hearts, and said to men, stretch out your hands. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. Church, what we see is that the king demonstrates that he is indeed the Lord of the Sabbath. He alone is the king. He has authority and power. You see, he did not only stop by the synagogue on his journey to merely have a debate with the Pharisees about the ins and outs of Sabbath. Rather, he actively moves towards who are broken to heal, to touch, to meet, and to speak into their lives on the day of Sabbath. Here, Christ is not only grieved by the hardness of the heart, but it does not stop him from moving towards brokenness. I don't know about you, but that's a promise for me. Despite the hardness of our hearts, he is grieved, but he does not stop from coming to us. He does not stop from demonstrating his authority over us. He does not stop from showing us that he indeed is the Lord of the Sabbath. He alone can give us rest. 
And He alone can give us power. He alone can give us hope in the one who is to come. You see, the king is about life-changing, life-altering mindset that makes the followers cry out, I am not the Lord. He is. I am not the king. He is. I don't determine my own path, but he does. Our king demonstrates his authority. So in response, you cannot help but to say, he is my king. I'm not. Church, I believe the promise of the scripture says he is coming for you. Not just to make you feel good. In fact, it may not. Because he's coming after your idols. Your blind spots. He's going to point that out. The more and more closer you get to the holiness of the Lord, don't you think it's pretty obvious that you're going to see more of your sinfulness? Right? If you want to be closer to the Lord, don't you think you're going to be exposed more to see how broken you are? Many people say, I want to grow. I want to love the Lord. You know, that, you know what that means? That means you're going to see all the nasty parts of your life so clearly not only for yourself, but for the many, many people to see, God often uses the brokenness of others to teach you and to many around them. And you know, as God moves towards you, He's going to want to break that. Break the idols that you hold on to. To deal with it, your life will be disrupted. He may move you. You'll be shaken. He may create enemies by your testimony. He'll bring others to you that you're not familiar with or comfortable with. There may be mountaintops, but plenty of valleys of shadow of death. But church, all you saints, he reminds us that he won't leave you alone. He will never forsake you nor leave you. He's present even now as you wrestle in your brokenness, in your insecurities, in your confusion, in your hurt. And if God is doing that work this morning, I pray that you see it. Oh, I hope that our church provides a place where we just don't come to feel better, right? I hope this church becomes a place where you come and are broken. I hope we don't give you a list of to-dos. I hope this place becomes a place where we realize the heart of the lawgiver, the God, the creator, is pointed towards you. And he demands you to respond, to follow him. And I hope that that's what we do as our church this morning, as we gather on this Easter, as in anticipation of Easter Sunday that is to come. Again, as we see in this text, when you see him, when you see who he is and what he's able to do, there are two responses that you can have. In chapter 2, verse 13, we find another calling of a disciple. It says, when he went out again beside the sea, and all the crowds was coming to him, and he was teaching them, and he passed by, he saw Levi, a son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, tax collector. And he said to him, follow me. And he arose and followed him. But again, later, the Pharisees went out, immediately held counsel with Herodians against him to destroy him. Here again, what we were reminded, as we see Christ clearly, 
Either you will move to destroy him, to deny him, to push him out as he moves towards you, or as he invites you to follow him, you you can't help but to surrender, trust, rest in the Lord to follow after him. As we conclude, I thought about what makes one go in the direction of wanting to wait for the king like this, and what makes the other to go in the opposite direction, wanting to destroy a king like this. And I thought of a time when I went to India for a short mission trip. I had a privilege of going to India for about four years with my previous church and mission trips. And uh, it takes about 18 hours to fly there, multiple layovers and whatnot. And I remember uh, one time we got lost, but we just didn't know what we were doing, and we lost the flight time, and it was 18 hours became two-day journey to get there. So we're supposed to be at this uh, local church on Tuesday, but we got there on Wednesday because we had to take a flight when we got to India. We had to fly again to get there, and there's so many just things happened along the way. We're exhausted. We're so tired. And uh, we're so tired by the time we got to this particular church. And I remember coming to this church, and I was thinking, man, it's like I traveled 24 hours, two days to get here. I just want to go to my hotel and to relax and to enjoy some rest at home. And you think our service can be long at times? You should go to India and see how long their service is. I get there. We got there, and I think, I don't know what we got there. We got there at a certain time. And they were waiting, right? They're all waiting for us by the time we got there, right? And all the children were not in children's ministry. They were all sitting in the front row waiting for us. And I was thinking, why is that the case? I realized I was their entertainment for the day Um, because the foreigner is here, right? And they're all sitting there, and the worship, worship begins, and for about 20 minutes to an hour, we're singing. It felt like an hour, but I'm sure for them it was like 20 minutes. We sing the same song over and over and over and over again. And I'm thinking, oh, Lord. Give me patience and rest. And then it was a testimony time. We have testimony time at our church too. It was not one testimony. It was 10 testimonies. Because everyone said, let me tell you about what God has done this week. Not 10 years ago when Christ saved me, but this week. Oh my goodness, it was after hour, after hour, after hour. And finally, finally, my pastor had a chance to speak. But if you ever preached at a, if you ever heard a sermon that's preached in another language, you got to translate. So 20-minute sermon becomes 40-minute sermon. And if the person that doesn't translate really, really well, then 20-minute sermon becomes an hour sermon, right? So my pastor, who tend to preach long, was about hour sermon, became two-hour sermon. And do you think that's the end? Absolutely not, right? <laughs> what happens after you hear the word of the Lord? You come for prayer. So there was just line out the door. I don't know why. Even, my, even in front of me, people were just lining out the door to be prayed over. And as I looked at my pastor, he said, yes, we pray until they're all gone. And that's another couple hours of consistently praying. Again, if you think about praying for 10 minutes in your own language, translated is 20 minutes per person, right? All those things happen. And I came home after a long day, and I came feeling pretty good about what we did. The Indian pastor said, thank you so much for coming all the way here. We were received flowers. Man, and we were taken out to eat a nice restaurant. We are put in a nice five-star hotel. And I had took a hot shower that night after two days. I was laying there resting, 
and I could not sleep. Church, you know, I was there to give the gospel. I flew 24 hours, two days. Um, the 24 hours, 48 hours. I mean, 24 hours, one day. 48 hours, right? I flew there and drove hours, and I sacrificed many, 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 many hours. I personally gave, along with many people's money, to make it there so that I can give the gospel. But you know what happened? I realized I wasn't giving the gospel. I received the gospel. I wasn't the one that was hungry for the Lord. I wasn't the one that was longing for this king to come. I was there as a pastor, fulfilling my duties, doing the right things, feeling good about myself because I came far away. But you know, I was further from the gospel than the people I ministered to. The people that I ministered to on that day were actually preaching the gospel with their hunger, with their zeal, with their testimony about the goodness of the Lord on that very day. Church, look at what it says in this text. And as he reclined at the table in his house, many text collectors and sinners were reclining with Christ and his disciples. And there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw he was eating with the sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need for a physician. But those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. This morning, the question that begs in our hearts, is this the king that you're waiting for? Church, he is coming. It's Palm Sunday. Good Friday is coming, and the Easter will happen. And we know that Christ came, lived, and rose again. But the question that we have to ask, is he the king? that you and I are waiting for. Let's pray, shall we? Let's pray. Father, we, we confess that oftentimes we are more like Pharisees than Herodians, than those who are sick and those who need a physician in our lives. More often than not, Lord, we declare with our mouth that we worship you. But with our actions and our demeanor, we often push you to the side and place ourselves at the forefront. Oftentimes, Lord, we make it all about me, my feelings, and my righteousness, rather than absolutely dependent upon your righteousness, and your hope that can be found at the foot of the cross. Lord, we confess this morning and we join with the others in crying to our God to come and deliver us. I am sick. I'm a sinner. I'm broken in need of his saving grace. Come, Lord. Come, O Lord. Come into my broken heart change, transform this life in anticipation of the king who not only comes, 
who dies, who rises again. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.